Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease in Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. We'll be discussing the phantoms from January uh, 2022. Uh, apologies for the, the lateness of the podcast, but I still would anticipate we've got uh, lots to talk about and lots that are still pertinent for people to reflect on in, in the journal. Uh, with me as always is Professor Ben Stenson uh, from the Simpson in, in Edinburgh. Ben, if you'd just like to say hello. Hello, Jonathan. <laughs> and I think, uh, as always, there's always a good range, but there's uh, a, quite a, a keen focus on sort of resuscitation and post-resuscitation type things and optimizing therapeutic hypothermia. Um, there's a, a few things to discuss from the, the journal. Firstly, more from the National Neonatal Research Database and Lara Shipley and colleagues looking at I suppose 2011, 2016 was the introduction of, of widespread cooling in, well, worldwide, but specifically in the UK. Yes, I think that it was actually 2010 that the BAPM did their national guideline on it and all of the trials had been meta-analyzed since then. And so, yes, this study describes the implementation, I suppose. So the BAPM uh, introduced their, their cooling guideline 2010, and, and really uh, the guideline really focused on cooling centres, regional cooling centres and non-cooling centres, with the recommendation, if I remember correctly, that, that babies should be cared, the majority of the care should be regionalised and in a cooling centre. And this review um, by Shipley and colleagues from, from Nottingham, I believe, has looked at survival and some other aspects of outcomes from, from those babies during that time. Yeah, well, um, cooling's been around a long time now. And when it first started, I think we were all concerned that it might be tricky and it would take a while to get expert at it. Um, but now it feels like we we need to move on and um, ensure we're getting the best out, out of it and look towards new things that we can work alongside it. And what these data show, not surprisingly, is that if, if infants were born in cooling centres, they got onto servo cooling and... Um, achieved target temperatures, um, whereas there was delay in that if they were born in non-cooling centres. Because the basic science data suggests that the earlier you start cooling, the better, that has to be of concern. And now, of course, we're more confident about cooling and even servo cool cooling, uh, along with associated AEG monitoring, being deliverable in, in non-tertiary centres, mm -hmm. And in order to optimize the, the therapy, rolling it out much more widely so that the babies can access it as quickly as possible. Once you start looking at small changes to the way you do it, then the changes in outcome you see might be smaller. In this study, they've shown that you could have fewer seizures. And it, that's quite tricky to interpret because. Um, seizures are often misdiagnosed and if you're in a center without EEG it's possible that you might overdiagnose them mm -hmm. and also cooling is probably an effective anticonvulsant treatment so yeah. trying to get to the bottom of all of that is a bit tricky but the the information in the study shows how much can be done to optimize 
cooling in non-tertiary centers so that babies can access it more quickly. Yes, and to go along with this, one of the good things about the study is that it does use the National Neonatal Research Database, so there's it captures a lot of patients and a lot of activity during that time. It has a lovely... Um, editorial with uh, Toppen Austin and Ila Chakrapani uh, from uh, Cambridge and Bristol, respectively. Um, they really discuss the, the timing and really proper assessment of, in cooling and um, and I think highlighting the fact that, you know, cooling during the sort of the transport sort of period is, is quite, quite important as well. Um, and there are some other editorials, a separate editorial by Sita Shankaran um, and a viewpoint, I believe, from Muhammad Ali Tajin and Alatrit Gunn, who I think are both in Auckland, really giving a view, that viewpoint where if the story fits, then perhaps um, you can cool on the air of having they met all of their criteria. So I think there's a lot to unpack with that optimizing therapeutic hypothermia. And I think making the decision to cool and then getting the cooling chain right are things that we maybe need to move on from, from that early, you know, now we know how to do it and we know how to do it fairly well. Optimizing the, the breaks in the chain and the accuracy of the diagnosis is probably where the, the next focus probably should be. Yes. And the clinical community is caught on the horns of a dilemma with, um, now feeling capable of implementing this treatment uh, without too much difficulty and worrying that the cooling trials were designed to identify a population of babies most likely to benefit from cooling. And obviously that gave them the statistical power to show the benefits that it has, but they didn't select all children who may benefit from cooling. Mm -hmm. And we constantly worry about whether some of the other kids who don't fulfill the full entry criteria might still benefit. And there's this tension between people who want to get on with it, as reflected in the viewpoint in our early issue by Alistair Gunn, versus the approach which is to ensure that as many of these babies as possible get put into randomized controlled trials. And we do have ongoing trials of cooling uh, for mild encephalopathy and in mildly preterm babies. So hopefully the information will get better in the in the months to come or the years to come. Yeah, let's hope so. Another large sort of surveillance study um, moving on from therapeutic hypothermia, looked at life-threatening uh, BPD and uh, uh, Rebecca Naples and her colleagues have a report, a uh, prospective uh, uh, BPSU report on infants with life-threatening BPD. Um, and reading this, actually, I've always been very pessimistic about those babies um, and actually reading this made me feel less so. Good, I'm glad because that's how I felt too. And as someone who is not in the first flush of youth. <laughs> and I, I started uh, neonatology in the early 1990s. And um, back then, we had neonatal units full of babies with what you would now call old BPD, quite serious uh, disruption to their lung architecture and very prolonged ventilation and stay. Whereas in this... Um, newer period now babies like that are few and far between thankfully and most of our babies are on a more straightforward journey off lower levels of respiratory support 
gradually through supplemental oxygen to discharge. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it means that the present generation of clinicians is not very familiar with what we might call life-threatening VPD. And there is a pessimism associated with it, which is um, demonstrably out of proportion with the outcomes as described in this study, which uh, show that even the ones who are still on positive pressure support as they get to 38 weeks gestation, mostly get home in the, in the subsequent year. And uh, very few of them, once they get off ventilation, require reventilation. So I hope it gives people better grounds for optimism, but also that it tempers people's enthusiasm for constantly trying experimental therapies in the hope that they'll bring about some rapid improvement. And when you look at these babies, they've got very damaged lungs and um, nothing is going to bring about a very rapid improvement. No, and absolutely right. Neonatologists as a group are hooked on things that make a rapid difference and are making a decision every day on their ward round that they can palpate the uh, results from in the subsequent hours. And it requires them to make a big frame shift of patience and simple nutrition and nurturing for these babies, which is very unfamiliar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, at first, do no harm, and uh, the lungs we, we damage them over a long period of time. It is unrealistic that we'll fix them over a much shorter period of time. And I, I think patience is probably the, the 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 thing that we need to be more concerned about rather than fancy new um fancy new treatments. Um, but Taking a step back in terms of the physiology um, and, and BPD, something we've talked in this uh, podcast a few times in the past um, is uh, automated FiO2 control. Now, we've, we have got to, I think, in the stage in our, our understanding with different algorithms and, and it being employed in different methods and different forms of respiratory support, really now looking at which one is better than the other is really probably the, the nitty-gritty of where we're getting down to, do you think? Yes, well, I, I have to confess to a, a bit of a conflict of interest here because I've been involved in a lot of oxygen-related research. So this is a topic that always pricks my interest. And the NEOPROM trials of small differences in oxygen saturation targets showed that small differences in the distribution of oxygen across a reasonably large population of preterm babies has important effects on outcomes like death, ROP, NEC. And introducing automated controllers is exciting because they'll uh, enable oxygen to be reasonably tightly controlled, probably more so than with manual control. But it's important for us to recognize that these controllers change the oxygen saturation distribution of the babies. And therefore, these controllers would be predicted to have an influence on outcome. So if we're going to use them interchangeably, we've got to know that they do the same thing, or we've got to work out how to use individual ones um, most appropriately. So the, uh, this crossover study is of interest because in actual fact, it shows that two controllers actually achieve quite different patterns. And it, it won't be simple to say, or at least it, it may not be simple without further evidence to say, well, all you do is switch on your controller and set it to X because controller A will deliver one thing and controller B will deliver something 
a bit different. So we've got some work to do. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. All all things are not equal. In the same, well, it's roughly the same vein, the, the spontaneous breathing during core clamping was interesting in that it was a very physiological study which um, allowed some explanation of perhaps what's going on whenever we are, are a baby is breathing and, and, and what's going on under the hood, as it were. And it certainly looks like the breath in drives the flow of blood from the placenta uh, into where it needs to be. Um, this was a just a very, very nice, neat um, physiological study, I think, where people would definitely find interest when they, if they are interested in that understanding of, of what's going on. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? With real-time ultrasound during transition of watching the hemodynamics of onset of breathing and showing the blood effectively getting sucked into the fetus from the placental circulation during inspiration. And obviously that's with spontaneous breathing, um, which is likely to be quite different from the circumstance when you establish lung inflation with positive pressure. So translating one situation to another is complex. Um, Obviously, whether you inflate your lungs through spontaneous inspiration or um, positive pressure ventilation will open up the pulmonary circulation, mm-hmm. but the pressure dynamics will be very different. So yes, always more to learn. Yeah, always more to learn. And uh, I would hope that positive rather than negative pressure study is hopefully coming soon. Um, now, the, the last phantom uh, was one that I, I find interesting. I suspect that if we talk about it and then we, we we make sure that the people who are ardent believers in high flow know about it, then perhaps they would have something to comment on. So it, uh, it was a systematic review and meta-analysis of studies comparing CPAP with a humidified high flow nasal oxygen. Uh, and certainly the summary that I can that I could tell would conflict with some people's view that high flow is perhaps the right thing to do at the start and maybe CPAP is the right thing to rescue and nasal trauma is avoided in in high flow and certainly this group seemed to have a a, a clinical view of how that that would then be applied in practice but um this sort of re- reaffirms what we think but uh does have some interesting um aspects to to how we might practice in the future it's complicated, isn't it? The evidence comparing these two treatments suggests that the difference between these treatments is considerably smaller than the amount of bias that individual clinicians have about their preference for one or the other. And um, certainly, I think that's what we observe in clinical practice that. CPAP fans like putting babies on CPAP and high flow fans like putting babies on high flow. And it's difficult to see that being resolved much further. Um, the simple fact is both are effective non-invasive treatments for keeping babies off ventilation and have helped us in some degree to transform what these babies go through. It does seem as if uh, we're in a state when we need to work out more about how how to use these therapies in the longer term and how to get babies off them. But um, the difference between them for primary or secondary treatment appears to be very small. Yes, and it, it certainly seems that when you look at the pressures and flows delivered by 
both uh, modalities. The differences between the two, is, even from a very basic sort of physics point of view, seems to be very similar. So I, I can't imagine that the clinical differences could be so dramatic, given the fact that how the modalities work are quite the same, really. Yeah, I mean, both deliver dead space was out, both deliver CPAP, and ultimately, clinical teams do best at things that they're most practiced in. So we've probably reached equilibrium. Yep, absolutely. Well, so Ben, thank you very much. That's uh, the January edition. Uh, Apologise for the slight delay in, in getting that out to everybody, but there's lots of stuff to unpick. Um, and I hope that we will perhaps unpack some of the therapeutic hypothermia stuff with some of the authors in the future. Um, so thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs>